Good morning, Fellowship Greenville. So good to see you today. So great to be back with you. Looking forward to opening the Word with you today. If, hey, if this is your first time with us, uh, welcome. We're so glad you've chosen to worship with us today. And uh, one of the things that we want you to know about us is, is, is if you attend here on a regular basis, you'll find that on most Sunday mornings we are studying our way through Uh, a whole book of the Bible. And uh, we do this for two reasons. First of all, God has chosen to reveal himself to us in the 66 books of the Bible. So we teach through books uh, because we want to teach the Bible the way that God gave us the Bible, and that's book by book. Now, the second reason we teach through books is because we believe it's the best way for you to learn to read the Bible, and that is book by book. Not, not the finger plop method where you just open the Bible randomly to some page, you take your finger and you plop it down on a verse, and, uh, and then that's God's word for you today. I mean, some people have done that, and, and it's like they plop their finger down and it says, uh, uh, Judas hung himself. And then they open it up and flip over a couple more pages, plop it down again, and it says, go and do likewise. So uh, when, you, when you just do finger plop, you end up uh, taking verses of the Bible out of context, and you read into the Bible your own feelings about what you think it says. So, no, so we teach the Bible book by book in order to help you learn to read the Bible the way that God gave us the Bible. Now, last year, we took, well, actually, we took over a year, and we studied through the Gospel of John. And this fall, in just a few weeks, we will uh, uh, begin a study in the book of Ephesians. But typically, in the summers, we do topical series. And uh, as the bumper video uh, pointed out, uh, we're doing a series called The Words We Use, How God's Word Shapes Our Words. And we've been looking at the words we use with God, the words we use with each other, and the words that we use with those outside the faith. And we haven't followed a, a, a nice, clean one, two, three outline on these three topics. We've, we've jumped around allowing each of our teachers to choose topics that they're most passionate about. Like in the last two weeks, Jim is actually writing a book on singing. And so uh, uh, Jim taught about the words we use in song. And then Matt Rexford uh, led us last week. Uh, in, a, in a great study uh, of words of lament, and I think you would agree that both those messages were just like over-the-top good. They were very, very good. And this morning, I want to pick back on, up on something that I'm very passionate about, and that is words of witness, and this is part three of the words we use with those outside of the faith kind of thing. And I want to begin with a story. I'm going to tell you about a guy named uh, Bob. Bob was born in a small town in North Carolina in the 50s. He grew up going to church, attending Sunday school, and learning uh, the stories, all the Bible stories about Moses and Jonah and David and Jesus and that kind of thing. And in the early 70s, Bob went off to college, and it was a time when students were really experimenting with drugs and, and sex and alcohol, and, and, and he, he hung out with a whole new set of friends that were all into that. And for those four years, uh, he walked away from the faith that he had inherited from his parents. But after college, he found that that new lifestyle was unsustainable. The the drugs affected his ability to hold a steady job. Uh, Casual sex made him feel more lonely. And he tired of his his friends. He felt like that they were just self-absorbed and stuck in perpetual youth and studenthood. And they were just kind of boring. And Bob felt empty inside. One day he was driving uh, and he passed 
uh, a church that advertised an old-style revival meeting on Saturday night. So he thought about it a little while, and he decided he would go. And that night, Bob heard uh, the familiar hymns that he had sung in his childhood. The Bible passage uh, that the preacher preached on was the prodigal son. That was also um, familiar to him. And even the preaching style was familiar to him. But it wasn't the speaking style that grabbed him. It was the message. And he heard that he had knowingly disobeyed God, and he had broken God's laws. And he was guilty of offending holy God, and he realized that he deserved to be punished for his sins. But he also heard the good news as well. He heard that if he trusted Jesus as, as his Savior, his sins would be forgiven, the slate would be wiped clean, he could start again, and God would give him a brand new life that would last forever. And Bob was, he was convicted, he was cut to the heart, and after the preacher finished his message, Bob prayed a prayer of repentance, and he gave his life to Jesus, and it was like this huge weight was lifted, uh, the weight of his sins was lifted off his shoulders, and that day it was like drawing a line in the sand. Uh, from that moment on, Bob considered himself a committed follower of Jesus. Eventually, Bob married a godly Christian woman. They had one child, a daughter, Sarah, who grew up. She went off to college, and now she has a successful career in marketing. But Sarah doesn't want anything to do with her father's Christianity. And whenever Bob tries to talk with her about how Jesus died for her to take away the guilt of her sins, Sarah finds that message offensive. And for her, Christianity is nothing more than oppressive, organized religion designed to impose stupid rules on people in order to control them by making them feel guilty. And Bob doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know how to talk to his daughter about this. I mean, when he heard the gospel message all those decades ago, it was so convicting to him. But that same message has no effect on his daughter whatsoever. If anything, it's pushed her farther away from Christianity. Now, many of us are familiar with one way of understanding and talking about the gospel. We hold kind of to one main gospel metaphor, and that's the metaphor of guilt and forgiveness. But the Bible actually gives us several other metaphors that help us understand what Jesus has done for us. In fact, we see in the New Testament the, that the unchanging message of the gospel is, is shared in a variety of different ways, and that's what I want to talk about this morning. So I'm going to begin by asking some questions. The first question is, what is the gospel? When I, say, when I talk about sharing the gospel, what comes to your mind? What are the words of the gospel? What's the gospel? What comes to your mind when, we, when I talk about sharing the gospel? What are we talking about? What are you sharing? And then what are the words of the gospel? And those are the questions that I want to explore today. Now, if you've been around the church for a while, you probably know that gospel means good news, specifically the good news about Jesus Christ. So what is the gospel? It's the good news about Jesus. The gospel is the story of God saving his people and judging his enemies by sending Jesus to die for our sins and rising from the dead to give us new life. So in that sense, the gospel is both good news and bad news. Good news for those who believe it, bad news for those who reject it. But the word itself means good news. Now we also need to keep in mind that in the scriptures, the gospel is communicated to both non-believers and believers. And as I've said many times, the gospel isn't just the way into 
uh, a new life with God. It is the way that we live out our new life with God. Paul puts it this way in Colossians 1, 28. He says, we proclaim Christ, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. So Paul is specifically talking about proclaiming the gospel of Christ to believers. And he is saying that the gospel is the foundation for all of his preaching and teaching and for for his calling believers to be faithful to Jesus. But for our purposes today, I'm just going to focus on the gospel as it is shared with those outside the faith, urging them, urging non-believers to trust Christ for salvation. And here's my big idea. This is the big idea for the message. In the Bible, there is no single way of sharing the gospel. Instead, the gospel is communicated in a variety of different ways. In the Bible, specifically the New Testament, there is no single one way of sharing the gospel. Instead, the gospel is communicated in a variety of different ways. Now, most of us tend to think that the way the gospel was communicated to us when we first trusted Christ for salvation we tend to think that that is the way the gospel ought to be shared, or at least something very close to that. So if, um, if you came to Christ when someone shared a little booklet with you called the Four Spiritual Laws, then that's how you tend to think of the gospel. This is the gospel, and, this is, and that's how you tend to think that it should be shared, or something very close to that. Uh, or if you trusted Christ when someone drew out the bridge on a napkin, or a piece of paper, that's probably how you think about the gospel and how to share the gospel. Or if you heard a preacher or a student pastor or a friend walk you down the Romans road way of salvation, remember that, Romans 3, 23, 6, 23, 5, 8, 10, 9, and 10, and 13. Well, that's how you, that's how you tend to define the gospel. And so when someone talks about sharing the gospel, that's probably what comes to your mind or something very close to that. So I'm just curious How many of you uh, who have put your faith in Christ, you put your faith in Christ as a result of hearing the gospel presented in one of those ways, one of those three ways, or something very similar to that? Raise your hand. Okay, yeah, just almost everybody in the room. So so for many of us, the gospel was presented to us as four or five big biblical statements of fact that you have to believe in order to be saved— And so we believe those facts. We pray to prayer, putting our faith and trust in Christ, and God forgave our sins and gave us eternal life. And that method was effective. I mean, it was very effective. Millions of people uh, received Christ when they heard the gospel shared that way. The Holy Spirit used those methods to draw millions of people to himself, and many people, and many of us here today, are still walking with Jesus because we took that step of faith. Now, the reason that method, those methods, were so effective was because a great majority of people in this country for a long time held the Bible in high regard. Most people had some kind of church background. Most people were concerned about living a good life, a life good enough to get them into heaven when they died. And most people believed in heaven and hell, and they didn't want to end up in hell. And those beliefs shaped most people's worldview in this country, really from the founding of our nation, our nation uh, all the way up to about the year 2000. But those methods that I just mentioned were used almost exclusively, exclusively from the 50s to the 2000s. 
Now, all that has changed. We don't live in a culture like that anymore. A majority of the people that we rub shoulders with every day have no church background and have no regard for the Bible. Or, 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 or maybe they had such a bad experience in church or, or a bad experience with God not coming through for them like they thought he would or should. And so they walked away from Christianity and they never looked back. Or maybe they grew up in church but then went off to college and some atheist college professor convinced them that Christianity and the church and the Bible are nothing more than the ways that people in power oppress the poor and the marginalized. Now listen carefully. Sharing the gospel with people like the ones that I just mentioned, using one of the message, methods that I shared above or something similar to that, most often has no impact whatsoever on those people. And that's a problem. That's a big problem. Now, a couple of weeks back, I mentioned that I'm reading a book by a man named Sam Chan entitled How to Talk About Jesus Without Being That Guy. And it, I'm telling you, it is, it is a, a, a great book. And I told you then, I'll tell you again, I'm adapting some of what he says uh, in that book in my words of witness messages. And I'm also reading Sam Chan's deep dive into this whole topic entitled Evangelism in a Secular World, and I'm using some of the things I've learned in that book uh, as well and incorporating them into my messages. Now, Chan starts one of his chapters like this. He says, imagine I told you this story. Last night, while my wife and I were watching TV, a UFO landed in our backyard and a purple alien, there he is, uh, remember that from two, yeah, okay, a purple alien got out of the UFO and asked us to join him. So my wife and I got into the UFO, and, we, uh, and he took us to his home planet, Jupiter. And there he showed us around his home city. We had dinner with his family. Afterward, we got back into the UFO and returned to Earth. But when we got back, because of the space-time continuum, we went through a time portal, and only one second of Earth time passed. Now, how many of you believe that happened? Okay, all right, let me tell you another story. 2,000 years ago, God sent his son, Jesus. This man was 100% God and 100% human at the same time. He was born from a virgin. While he was on earth, he healed sick people and raised dead people back to life. And then he died on a cross. And if you believe this, he will take away all your sins and forgive you. But he didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead and is now in heaven. And if you put your faith in him, God's very own spirit comes to live inside of you right now. And when you die, your soul will leave your dead body to be with Jesus in heaven. And one day, he will return and set up his kingdom on earth. And when he does, your dead body will rise from the grave and be reunited with your soul. Now, how many of you believe that story? Amen. Amen. Now, if you're a Christian, you have no problem believing the story about Jesus. But you probably have a very hard time believing the UFO story. Or maybe not. But, but for a growing majority of people in this country today, the Jesus story sounds as unbelievable as the UFO story. Maybe even less believable than the UFO story. And what this means is sharing the gospel in the same way that people shared the gospel in the 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s just doesn't ring true for these people. It sounds as unbelievable as the UFO story. And the moment you say, well, the Bible says conversation is over because they don't believe the Bible. Now, I hear you. You're saying, but, but we're not responsible for whether they accept the truth or, or not. 
I mean, we're not responsible. We're just the messengers. We just have to tell them the truth. We're just the messengers. And yes, that is absolutely true. God controls the outcomes of the conversations. But G- and Jesus has commissioned us to tell people the truth about who God is and what God has done for them. We're just the messengers. That's true. However, we have to communicate the gospel in ways that people can hear and understand and respond to. Like this. Listen. Car du attend à le monde qui le donné son fils unique afin que quiconque croit en lui ne périsse point, mais qu'il ait la vie éternelle. Now, anybody know what I said? Well, I just preached the gospel to you. That's John 3.16 in French. And I worked about an hour to get that down. And I had two years of high school French and three years of college French. I minored in French in college, but about all that I remember is Oué la Bibliothèque, which is where is the library, which is not going to help me that much. But I preached the gospel to you. Was it effective? No, it wasn't in a language you could understand. Does it matter if you understand or not? Of course it matters. If If you don't understand what I'm saying, how can you respond? And I'm saying that many of the people we work with and go to school with and live next door to cannot understand the words we use when we share the gospel in ways that we've been accustomed. And that means we need to find new ways to share the unchanging good news of the gospel. And when I say new ways, I mean maybe it's new for us, but they're actually old ways. They are actually the ways that the gospel writers and Jesus and Paul and other New Testament writers shared the gospel in their day. I'm saying we must not confuse a method of sharing the gospel with the gospel. We must not confuse a method of sharing the gospel with the, with the gospel. Now, the Bible shows us very clearly, the New Testament, there are a variety of different ways to share the gospel. But before I uh, show you that, I want you to think about this. Let's say that I'm a car salesman, and I'm really good at selling Jeep Wranglers. Now, what makes me a good Jeep salesman? Well, I have to be good at convincing you that, that a Jeep is the vehicle you really need and that you want to drive. So, if I find out you're an engineer... I'm going to tell you about the engine specifications. Like, well, you have a choice of uh, uh, three powerful engine options. You've got 3.6-liter Pentasar V6 engine that generates about 285 horsepower. Or you can choose two liter, the 2-liter two turbo V4 engine that doles out about 270 horsepower. Or you can go diesel with the 3-liter Echo Diesel V6, which produces 260 horsepower. It's your choice. You can take it. They're all great engines. But that's, if you're an engineer, I'm going to tell you about specifications. Now, if you're an architect, I'm going to emphasize the timeless form and the rugged beauty of the vehicle. If you're a creative type, I might emphasize how Wranglers come in more colors than any other car, and they don't even have yellow up there, which that's Katie Bullock's Jeep. Uh, It's a yellow Jeep, and it's like my favorite, but it's not one I'm going to end up driving. But anyway, um, here's the other thing about Jeep. It's pretty much... The only car you can personalize and customize to your heart's desire. Like, here's just an example. Like, these are all the kinds of things you can do to it. And here's what it looks like after you you, uh, get it the way you want. Next slide. There it is. 
And now that is a beefy looking thing there. And you can even go even more crazy than that, which I'm going, why did you do that to the front end of the Jeep? Now you have messed up the timeless form and rugged beauty of the Jeep. Like, what did you do that for? Or, I mean, you can go way crazy with the Jeep and come up with something like that. And so, I mean, with a Jeep, you can do things you can't do with any other vehicle. And they are, you know, they're talking about this new Ford Bronco being a competition to the Jeep. I mean, come on, really? Not, no, no way. Jeez. If you're a nurse or a soccer mom, I'm going to talk about the safety features of the vehicle. If you're a college student, I'm going to emphasize how much room you'll have in the four-door unlimited, which you'll need for hauling stuff back and forth to college. Same vehicle, but if I'm a good salesperson, I'll have different ways of promoting a Jeep to different people. And now I really do think I have a career after whatever I do here. So anyway, um, now listen, none of those methods are deceitful, right? Instead, in each case, I'm emphasizing some aspect of the Jeep that the customer will immediately understand and connect with. The same is true when we present the gospel. Now, we're not gospel salesmen. I understand that every illustration breaks down. But the gospel is the same story, God's story, true for all people at all times in all places. But the Bible gives us different ways of explaining God's good news to different people. That's exactly what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 20 to 22, when he said, To the Jews I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, in other words, the Greeks and Romans, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, of course, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. And look at this. He says, I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. Been a great Jeep salesman. That's what he's talking about. Do you see? He didn't just have one method of sharing Christ with people. He adapted the way that he shared the gospel to help people of different backgrounds connect with God's good news. Now, I introduced this idea three weeks back in part two of Words of Witness when I talked about how Peter and Paul shared the gospel in different ways depending on their different audiences. And we saw how with religious people, they both quoted a lot of Scripture. With irreligious people, they talked God's story and included sayings from the culture to help people connect with God's story. Now, today, I'm going to build on all of that and take it a little bit further. And again, Sam Chan's helped me a lot here with this. But hear me one more time, just to be clear, the gospel is true For all people at all times and in all places, it is the same story, God's story, and it is for everyone. But at the same time, the different books of the Bible, I'm talking New Testament, use different ways of presenting the gospel, tailoring tailoring their presentations to the different backgrounds of the intended audiences. Now, so rather than unpack a single passage of Scripture as we normally do, this is what expositional preaching, this is what we do book by book, this is what I normally do. I'm not going to do that this morning, but I'll repent afterwards. But I'm going to fly over the New Testament, and I'm going to explain and prove to you the point I'm trying to make. What's the point? In the New Testament, there's no single way, no one single method of sharing the gospel. Instead, the gospel is communicated in a variety of different ways. 
And I want to show you that by doing kind of New Testament survey of how the gospel is presenting in the New Testament. So here's what I want you to do. I want you just to sit back and listen and try to take in the big picture because I'm making one point, but I got to prove it to you and explain it to you, and I'm going to give you a bunch of, bunch of information. Don't, do not try to even take notes. Like in the sermon notes, when I got to this part, I said, sorry, it's just too much to write down. But all this information is geared to help you believe this one point that I'm trying to make. Now, so we're going to begin with the Gospels. Each of the four Gospels presents Jesus in a different way to different audiences. And it's called the Gospel according to Matthew, right? So Matthew is written to Jews and Jewish converts, especially those that are familiar with Old Testament prophecy. And Matthew quotes over 60 Old Testament prophecies to connect with his audience. Matthew presents Jesus as the king and the promised Messiah of Israel. Mark is written to Gentiles and Roman believers. So Mark writes in a very basic Greek. He explains Jewish customs and defines Aramaic words to help his non-Jewish readers connect. Mark presents Jesus as the suffering servant of God. Luke writes to a man named Theophilus, a Roman dignitary, probably a new Christian, So he too is writing primarily to a Gentile audience, and Luke presents Jesus as the universal Savior, the one that the Gentiles have been seeking, but they just didn't know it. Luke emphasizes Jesus' mission mission to those that are marginalized, women, the poor, the outcast, the sick, the unclean, the racially distant. For his audience, salvation takes on the metaphors of of freedom and healing and restoration. And Luke shows us what the right response to the gospel looks like for different people. Both the expert in the law, the young lawyer of Luke 10, and the rich young ruler of Luke 18 ask Jesus the same question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus gives a different answer to each person. To the lawyer, he says, you need to lay aside your racism and your rules and learn to love other people with a costly love like the Samaritan in this story that you despise. To the rich young ruler, he says, give up your love for riches and make following me the most important thing in your life. Same question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Different answers geared to the different needs of the people to whom Jesus is speaking. John's gospel is written so that unbelievers will believe in Jesus and receive eternal life. But he also writes to believers so they can have assurance of the life that they've received through faith. And John presents Jesus as God come in the flesh, God who became human and dwelt among us. And John gives us this one-verse one gospel summary in John 3.16. One verse, the entire gospel, one verse. And, and he shows us, though, how Jesus presents the gospel differently to different people. To the Pharisee, Nicodemus, Jesus says, you must be born again. But to the Samaritan woman, he says, whoever drinks of the water that I give them, they will never thirst And to the man born blind, he says, I'm the light of the world. And then we have all the I am sayings of Jesus where he chooses well-known Old Testament metaphors and applies them to himself 
and he does it in a culturally relevant way. I'm the bread of life, he says. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the true vine. All these are metaphors. They are ways of explaining the gospel in different ways that connect with different people. So you got four gospels with four slightly different emphases communicating the same gospel stories. Now in the book of Acts, Luke, uh, Luke's summary of the gospel is found in Peter's speech to the crowd on the day of Pentecost. In that sermon, Peter talks about Jesus as the exalted Messiah, died, crucified, risen, seated at the right hand of God. And Peter says that repenting and believing in Jesus results in the blessings of forgiveness, the receiving of the Holy Spirit to come live inside you, and membership in the new community, the new people of God. Not so much about a personal relationship with God, but now you're in God's family. You're a part of this new community. But then in the rest of the book of Acts, Luke shows us how the gospel is presented in different ways to different audiences, which is what I talked about in part two, but just by way of review. To Jewish, Jewish audiences, the apostles present Jesus as the risen Christ. They emphasize Jesus' titles, Son, Messiah, Prince, Savior. They show that Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament Scripture, and they quote Scripture as the starting point of conversations. Scripture is the foundation for what they claim is true about Jesus. To Gentile audiences, the apostles use a different approach. They present Jesus as the one that they've been seeking all along and just didn't know it. There's no mention of Jesus as the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies because they don't know Old Testament prophecies. They don't mention Jesus' titles, and they don't quote Scripture. They talk out scriptural truth. So the apostles look for common ground in God's common grace. They talk about how good God is by sending rain and making crops grow and providing food. And they talk about the universal desire to worship the true God. Again, they don't quote Scripture, they talk Scripture, and they quote their audience's cultural authors to try to make a connection, which is what Jim talked about in part one of this little mini-series. Now, in Paul's letters, there are only four summaries of Paul's gospel, and that, those summaries are found in Romans 1, 1 through 6, Romans 1, 16 and 17, 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 5, and 2 Corinthians 5, 20 and 21. Paul mainly presents Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, but even Paul has a variety of ways of talking about this, uh, presenting the same gospel story. Now, I just mentioned how Paul talked one way to Jews and one way to Gentiles, but he actually puts a label on it in Galatians chapter 2, verse 7. He talks about the gospel to the circumcised and the gospel to the uncircumcised. Not that there's two gospels, but two methods of presenting the timeless gospel. Same gospel, different emphases, which shows us that Paul was always considering who he was talking to and then tailoring how he talked about Jesus so as to best connect with them. And think about, think about the different ways the gospel itself is described. It's called the gospel of the kingdom of God. It's called the gospel of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of grace, the gospel of peace, the gospel of your salvation. All of these describe the same gospel, but they emphasize a different aspect of the gospel. 
And I could go on and on, but I think you're getting the point by this time. There's no one-size-fits-all method of sharing the gospel. There's no one single way of sharing the gospel found in the Bible. In fact, there is no place in the Bible in one single passage where you find anything that sounds, sounds anything like the four spiritual laws or the bridge or the Romans road in one passage. In fact, Jesus never shared the gospel in any of those ways. And I think he would probably know what it is. Now, that doesn't mean those ways are wrong. Of course they're not wrong. God's used all of those ways to draw people to himself. And these methods of sharing the gospel are still very effective, especially when you're talking, about, uh, when you're talking to somebody who was raised in a church. They're still very effective uh, in a simple presentations of the gospel like this in places like South America and Cali, Colombia and some places in Africa where people have a, a, um, religious Protestant or Catholic backgrounds, and so they still ha- hold the Bible in high regard. And they still believe that Jesus is the Son of God. They just don't know Him. These, these, these methods are very, very um, helpful. But my one point is, in the New Testament, there's no one single method for sharing the gospel. The gospel is communicated. The Bible itself shows us the gospel is communicated in a variety of different ways. Because here's the deal. You see, every gospel presentation is essentially a summary that says something about Jesus who he is, why he came, what he promises to those who trust and follow him. And the logical flip side is that a gospel presentation will also communicate what sin is and what it means to reject the offer of salvation that Jesus extends to us. You see, the words, the words of the gospel are words like sin, guilt, death, judgment, forgiveness, grace, peace, Freedom, life, salvation, rescue, pardon, adoption, membership in God's family. And there's, there's tons more. But, but the, the, and, and using those terms, the New Testament shows us that we can use all of these different words at different times with different people as God's Spirit leads us. Now, I began this message with the story of Bob and his daughter, Sarah. The gospel was presented to Bob using the metaphors of sin and guilt and forgiveness, and that connected with him uh, experientially and emotionally and culturally. But those same biblical metaphors had less connection with his daughter. Worse, they actually reinforced her cultural hostility towards organized religion. So another way that Bob could share with Sarah, and this isn't going to be like a one-time thing. This is like you're going to have many, many conversations. But he could have a conversation, that, and, and, and instead of talking about sin as breaking God's law, he could talk about sin as dishonoring God. God made us. He's the creator God, and then we turned our back on him. That dishonors God. And, 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 and he could talk about sin as feeling morally superior to other people, especially those people that we don't like or don't agree with, and we feel like we're better than them. He could, he, could share the, he could retell the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector and show how, nah, in Jesus' way of thinking, that doesn't work. He could talk about sin as brokenness and being owned by whatever we're living for, which also dishonors God to live for something other than him. And he could explain the blessings of salvation to Sarah as true freedom or adoption, 
being adopted into God's family, or peace, or honor. He could talk about how an authentic follower of Jesus knows peace with God. He could emphasize the part that she could play in what God is doing in bringing his kingdom to pass and the renewal and the restoration God is working in the world, which that would connect with someone who wants to live for something bigger than themselves. He could help her see how life can matter, how her life can matter and how her life can have impact by bringing Jesus' love and mercy and justice and beauty to a hurting world. You see what I mean? The same gospel, same Jesus, same sin problem, same solution, but using different different biblical metaphors to talk about Jesus in ways that might better connect to people with different backgrounds and experiences than us. Now, I'm going to close with a story. This is a story about how I shared the gospel years and years ago. It's got to be over two decades ago. But I shared in a way that I'd never shared before, and it not only changed the life of the person who heard the presentation, but it changed my life. Because the reason Sam Chan's books resonate with me is because I've experienced what he's talking about and he's written it. I just never had the words to, uh, to express it. So, uh, so anyway, I'm going to change the names and some details to protect the guilty. All right. So a man in our church, I'll call him Tim, called me up and asked me to go to lunch with him and a young man that he was getting to know who had questions about God and life and faith. And Tim was in a book club with this guy named Rick. And at some point in their discussion in the book, somehow, some way, the conversation turned towards spiritual matters. And Rick said, I don't get it. I, moved, I, I was raised in New Jersey. I moved down here from New Jersey. I never went to church. My parents never went to church. My grandparents never went to church. And I moved to Greenville, South Carolina, and people go to church on Wednesday night. He said, I just don't get it. So Tim says to Rick, well, let's go to lunch, and I'll explain it to you. So they go to lunch, and Tim goes through a Romans Road-type gospel presentation. And when he finishes, Rick looks at him and says, Tim, I can tell you really are sincere about what you believe, but I don't understand a single thing you just said. It's like you're speaking a foreign language to me. And he says, you're going to have to get some help. <laughs> so Tim calls me, and he tells me all this, and he asked me if I'd go to lunch with him and Rick to see if... I could get anywhere with him, and I said, absolutely, yeah, sign me up, I'm there. But as soon as I hung up the phone, I'm like, God, what am I going to say? Like, I mean, I, I, I mean, what Tim shared with Rick, Rick is, the, is the same kind of thing that I would normally share, but, but he says it's not something that he can understand, so God, please help me, give me wisdom, give me words, and I prayed about it every day until that day of that lunch, and I prayed about it all the way there in the car, not knowing what I was going to say. Did you hear that? Not knowing what I was going to say. So we get to the restaurant and we order, and right off the bat, Rick says, okay, last time Tim did most of the talking. I want to talk first because I got a question. I got, I got a big Here's my question. If there is a God and he's loving and a powerful God, he's a loving and powerful God, why is this world so messed up? And I'm like... Okay, Holy Spirit, let's go. And I opened my mouth, and I said, well, to answer that question, I've got to ask and answer a more basic question, and that is, why did God create this world and people to begin with? And I said, the Scriptures tell us that there is one true God who created everything. Stars, sun, moon, universe, 
this planet, everything we see, animals, plants, seas, mountains, he created everything. And, and, and the scriptures tell us that God created the world as a very good place, a very good place where God and the people he created could live together in peace and harmony. And it was a good world, a beautiful world. I mean, there was no lying, there was no cheating, no stealing, no crime, no fighting, no violence, no sickness, no suffering, no pain. God was the king of this new world, and his people loved him and enjoyed a perfect relationship with him. And so Rick breaks in, and he says, well, so why isn't the world that way today? And I said, well, because God didn't want to force people to love him and trust him, because love is only meaningful when it's freely given and not coerced. It's like, I told him, it's, it's like my wife loves me and I feel her love because she has the option not to love me. And I've given her lots of reasons not to love me over the years. But she chooses to love me anyway. And so without choice, love wouldn't mean anything. So God created us with the capacity to choose. We could choose life with God, or we could go our own way and, and, and try to find life on our own and die trying. And the Bible tells us that at some point, the first humans, Adam and Eve, made the choice to turn their backs on God and go their own way. They questioned God's goodness. He, he, they, they wanted to decide for themselves what was right and wrong and good and evil. In essence, they, they wanted to be equal to God. And, and that, by the way, is what the Bible calls sin. Sin is wanting to live our lives our way rather than God's way. It's living for ourselves, which dishonors the God that created all things. So they exchanged eternal life with God for a death sentence. And the moment they disobeyed, they did come to know good and evil. And the seed of evil was planted in their heart and even in all of creation. And in the next several chapters of the story, what you see is hate and, and, and violence and injustice and murder and death. You see it spinning out of control. And that's been going on generation after generation all through history. So, Rick, you, you see, the world as we know it today, this isn't the good world that God created. It's the messed up, broken world that we created when we decided we could run things better than God. And Rick interrupted again, and he said, so what's God going to do about it? Has he just given up on us? Is, is, he, is he just going to let us destroy ourselves?" And I said, no, 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 he's already done something about it. To show us that he hasn't given up on us, God himself came to earth in the person of Jesus and extended the original offer of eternal life to us once again. And I said, you know, when Jesus walked this earth, he wasn't like anybody else. He, he loved and spent time with everyone, all people, good people, bad people. He got criticized for hanging out by, with, the, with the bad people. And he fed people, and he healed people. He restored the downtrodden and the broken people. And he even raised people from the dead, as hard as that might be to believe. But with, with, even with all of these incredible displays of his goodness and love, religious people, the religious leaders of his day, they hated him. They hated him because he made claims that went against everything they thought they knew about God. He claimed to be the Savior they had been longing for since the time when everything went wrong with the world. He claimed to be the way to God. 
He claimed to be the one who would ultimately judge the world according to God's standards of right and wrong. He actually claimed to be God, which if he wasn't, he had to be the worst, most evil liar that ever lived, or he was simply a crazy man. But, but those categories just don't fit with the love and goodness that the common people saw in him. Now, the other side of Jesus was this. He knew poverty and temptation and persecution and rejection by the people that he loved and he came to rescue. He lived in an occupied, oppressed nation. He was mocked and he was ridiculed, and at one point his own family thought he had lost his mind. Jesus experienced all the pain and suffering firsthand, and as God would have it, he died at the hands of a violent mob after being falsely accused by his enemies and abandoned by his friends. In Jesus, Rick, we, we see a God who loves us so much that he was willing to suffer and die at the very hands of the people that he came to save in order to rescue them and pardon them from the death sentence that we all live under. And so, you see, if you want to know what God is really like, you have to look at Jesus. And if you want to know what God offers you, Rick, you got to look to Jesus. Because he came to offer us a second chance at the life God offered us in the beginning. He offers us eternal life. Life forever with God and others who love God. And he offered himself as the way back to God. He said it like this. He said, I've come that you might have life and have it to the full. He said, I'm telling you the truth. Anybody who believes in me has eternal life. And the scriptures tell us that he died on the cross so we can be free of our sin and selfishness. And he rose from the dead to give us a whole new kind of life lived in relationship with God. And he interrupted again for the last time. He said, okay, 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 okay. so how's it all going to end? How's it all going to end? And I said, well, the Bible promises us that one day Jesus will come back and set right all this wrong with the world. And he'll establish a kingdom of peace and wholeness and harmony, just like he always wanted in the beginning. And in God's kingdom, I said, there will be no more sickness, no more disease, no suffering, no death, no pain, no evil, greed, hatred, prejudice, or abuse. And it's at that time that Jesus will judge the world with perfect fairness. And all of those who put their faith in Jesus in this life will enjoy God's life in God's kingdom. But all those who turn their back on God and his offer of life will not be a part of God's kingdom and they'll be separated from God forever. Because you see, as I said earlier, God doesn't force people to love him and trust him. And he won't force anyone to be with him in heaven. So the choices people make in this life to accept or reject Jesus will stand forever in the life to come. And he said, wow, uh, I don't know if I buy all that, but I can tell you for the first time in my life, I understand it. You're the first person I've ever talked to about this that's not a nutcase. He said, well, you and Tim, of course. And I said, Rick, it all comes down to this. You have to decide what you're going to do with Jesus. 
You have to decide, is Jesus who he claimed to be? Is he the Son of God come to this earth to live the life that we could never live and then die for us so we could live in relationship with God and his people now and forever? Is that who he is? Because the only other options is then he was uh, the most evil liar that's ever lived or he was simply just a lunatic crazy man. So you have to decide, what are you going to do with Jesus? And he said, well, I, I'm, I'm going to have to think about that. And I said, hey, I understand. It's a big decision. It's a life-changing decision. But when you do decide, I'd love to know where you land. And about three weeks later, I heard that he had gone to a church somewhere down in Easley, and he trusted Christ as his Savior in that church. Now listen, I never had shared the gospel that way before. But through his questions, uh, guiding me through the storyline of the Bible, and the Spirit giving me words and wisdom, I walked him through the entire story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. It wasn't anything like the four-fact method of sharing the gospel that I'd been taught and shared with people all my life. I just talked the scripture to Rick. Now, you know, and I know, I did quote some verses to him, but I didn't do chapter and verse. Because that wouldn't have meant anything to him. So, do you see, there's no one-size-fits-all method of sharing the gospel. Don't confuse the method of sharing the gospel with the gospel. Now, I know in a room this size and the size of Auditorium 1 and maybe online, I would imagine that some of you are here and and you might be in the same place that Rick is. And you've heard the gospel message this morning. And so I would put the same question to you that I put to Rick, and that is, what are you going to do with Jesus? You've heard the truth. You've heard the gospel. What are you going to do with Jesus? Is he who he claimed to be? Or do you come down on the side that he's just a crazy man or, he, or, 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 or a liar? You have, to, you have to make up your mind. And so, if while I've been speaking, you have felt God tugging at your heart, then live into that tug. I'm saying to you, trust Jesus to be your Savior. Trust Him to forgive your sin and to give you new life with God. Take that step. You don't have to, you don't have to do anything except in your heart go, I get it. I get it, and I believe Jesus is who he claimed to be, and I'm trusting him right now. I'm going to turn from the way that I've been living for myself, and I'm going to turn to God. And whatever that means, I, want to find, I, I, I plan to follow him for this day forward. And if you make that decision, I'd love to know where you land. So you can um, go by the next step table and let us know out there. Or just, you can contact me cboyd at fellowshipgreenville.org and I'd love to talk to you about it. Now, what I learned from uh, that one conversation with Rick, I've written down in a couple of formats. First, I wrote a, I told you it was changing, it changed my life. It just, I mean, I, it was just unbelievable, but I wrote a children's book entitled What God Has Always Wanted and it's available online at Amazon. There are two different covers of the book. This is the first cover. And then uh, Lifeway picked it up, and they did a whole new set of illustrations, and that's that cover. But I wrote this so, to help parents 
and teachers be able to share the gospel with their own children using the storyline approach to the Bible, just like, and where did I learn that? I learned it from Rick and the Holy Spirit. And then I also wrote a booklet that I have mentioned in the past. It's entitled Runaway Bride. It's kind of the adult version of the children's book, and it's a little more fleshed out. Uh, it's, it's still following what I learned in that co- one conversation, and it has more illustrations and, and things, and it's fleshed out more than what I just shared with you. And then uh, we also took Runaway Bride, and we distilled it down into a little pamphlet called Making Sense of God's Story, or Making Sense of My Life in God's Story, which is a short outline of the Runaway Bride. And um, this is actually not so much a sharing tool as it is an equipping tool. So if you kind of want to, in your small group or with your family or whatever you want to go over, like, how could I share the gospel that way? That's what this was intended to do. And it has like one, two, three, four, five, six. So it's not four biblical statements. It's like six. But no, this, the numbers are there. It's really a story, but the numbers are there because it's really odd how this thing opens up. Like, well, I opened it up the first time. I'm going, wait, what? How does, I couldn't make sense of it, but it goes like this. One, two, three, four, five, six. That's the way it opens up. So, but it's, it's an outline. It's a, it's, a, it's a teaching yourself how to share the gospel tool. And these two are available. I think there's some in the back, and there's a bunch of them out in the commons. Pick them up. My question is this. What are you going to do with what you heard this morning? How can you take what you heard... And find ways to share the gospel maybe in a different way than what you heard when you first came to Christ. Especially if you're talking to somebody who has no church background. And here's my encouragement to you. When God gives you the opportunity, open your mouth and let him fill it with wisdom and words. The wisdom and the words that you need to share the gospel with those who he has already prepared to hear it. God, I don't know what I'm going to say. Oh, just open your mouth. He'll give you the words. And, you, and if you were talking to Rick, you probably would do nothing like what I did, and that would be great and fine because you would share with him out of your own experience and out of your own knowledge. And that's what God wants to, that's how God wants to use us as his people on mission with him. One more thing, and then I'm done. Uh, I'd encourage you to talk about all this in your small group or with your family. It always encourages me when I hear, yeah, our family sat around the table and we, we talked about this. And, and uh, it was it's so good. But um, I've written down a whole bunch of stuff in the sermon notes section uh, in our app uh, or online at fellowshipgreenville.org. The website uh, under the sermon, there's a lot of discussion questions that you can dig into. But this is all a journey for us all. You don't learn these things after one sermon or two sermons or three sermons. It's, this is, see, we've thought about evangelism, evangelism as something we tack on. It's not an add-on. It's, it's our life. It's we're sharing the gospel with people to tell them how much God loves them. Father, what a great and glorious gospel we have to share with those who have not, who have not yet trusted Christ. It truly is the power of God that brings salvation to everybody who believes. So as we leave this place and go back into our everyday worlds, give us all the wisdom and the words we need to share the good news about Jesus when you open a door for us to open our mouths. 
Help us to love people enough to tell them about how much you love them. And I ask these things for Jesus' name's sake. Amen.